I want to start this morning with a question, and here's the question that if you had 24 hours, you were told you have 24 hours to live, and you could only have one of the following four things, but the key is, is whichever one you picked, it would be the exclusion of the others, okay? Which would you pick? You, you could get a million dollars, but again, you, you can't get anything with it. You can't share it with anybody. It's just you get to, I guess, sit around with a pile of money. Um, I guess you could buy something off Amazon, but you're going to be dead in 24 hours and the prime deliveries in two days, so you wouldn't get anything. Or you could go to any place in the world. We would fly you somewhere. Again, no money to spend there. Nobody would go with you, but we'd just drop you off and you could spend a day seeing whatever. Maybe any object or desire, anything that you've always wanted to have. Again, nobody to share it with. Um, maybe this is your chance to get the DeLorean you've always wanted since watching Back to the Future. But um, that, or the last one is, is you would spend your last 24 hours with friends and family. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I have a strong feeling that the majority of us would spend our last 24 hours with friends and family. That's, I kind of have a hunch about that. And I want to this, spend this morning explaining why the truth is, whenever I've asked this of people, almost everybody ends up picking the fourth one. And I want to do so in the context of the Trinity. Um, last week... We learn from the, an examination of Deuteronomy 6.4 and other parts of the Old Testament and the New that God does not exist in a solitary oneness. He is not one alone, that He is not a simple one. But what we learn from the Scripture is that God actually lives or He exists as a complex one, that there's this wonderful, mysterious plurality within the oneness of God. That a God exists in a oneness of plurality, He exists in community, right? He exists in community. That the one God is three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one in essence, and three in persons. That the God exists in a triunity. And the question I asked last week was, what's, is, is the so what, right? So what? Because I, as I said last week, I think a lot of us have held this doctrine off to the side because it's hard to understand, and the idea is like, it has no practical implications for my life. Um, but I said last week, and I want to start showing you this, that not only did this doctrine stand at the heart of everything we believe about God, but it stands at the heart of everything in the universe, of everything. Um, to paraphrase James Bryan Smith, the very fabric of the universe is grounded in God's Trinitarian nature. Nature, So it's the basis of everything. And it is the center of our faith, not just what we believe, but in how we live and behave. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Um, and that's why I said that this teaching has very profound implications for our life. In fact, last week I said something kind of interesting when I was talking about trying to give voice to what I've heard a lot of people say. Again, this is something, I don't understand it. I hope nobody asks me about it. It's like the weird uncle, right? Um, and I, even if it's true, I mean, I say it's true, I believe it's true, but even if it is, I don't know that it has anything to do with my, I said, with my Christian faith, much less my real life. And in saying that, like dividing those two, I was simply giving voice to what I've heard a lot of people say over the years, including Christians who tend to separate their Christian faith and their real life as if they're separate things, but they're not. So this speaks into the reality of everything, and so it speaks into my real life, which is my faith. Does that make sense? You can't, like, divide those things up. St. Augustine said of the Trinity, he said, in no other subject is error more dangerous or inquiry more laborious, that was kind of last week, or the subject of truth more profitable. 
And so starting this morning, I want to spend the next several weeks talking about the implications of the Trinity to how we live our lives as a body of believers, okay? So I want to take us to a passage of Scripture that speaks vitally into this area, and it's in the first epistle of John, his first letter. If you're new to the Bible, the very back of the New Testament, the back of the Bible is Revelation, and if you go back, right before that is Jude, then 3 John, 2 John, 1 John. And so we're in 1 John in chapter 4. So I'd like you to turn there, 1 John chapter 4, and if you would please stand with me as we read the scripture together. I'm reading out of the New International Version, and I will read, and if you would just follow along. So 1 John chapter 4, we're going to be doing verses 16 to 21. So starting in verse 16, here's what the word of the Lord says. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. And this is the word of the Lord. And God's people said, amen. So you may be seated. Now keep, keep that open for a minute. Look back to verse 16. There are 27 words in that verse, and at the very center of that verse are three very profound words, and those words are this, God is love. God is love. Those words are very significant because they tell us one of the most basic things we can say about the essence of God is that God is love. Um, And here's what this is teaching us. The love is one of the fundamental attributes or characteristics of the God whom we serve, that love is at the core of His being. It's at the very core of His being. That love is what describes the inner life of God as He existed, as He's existed throughout all of eternity. It's described that inner life. So love, so I want to be really clear, love is not just, it's not just something God decides to do. It's an occasional behavior. It says He is love. Love is at the essence of who He is. It's in His essence. Um, When I speak about me, I could say this. I could say, I love, or I do love. I could say about you, you love, you do love. But when we speak of God, we say He is love. Let me try to, to make that, clarify that a little bit more. Sometimes I love, and sometimes I don't. I think that's true of all of you, right? Sometimes you are loving, but sometimes you are not. Because for us, it's, it's an intermittent trait, but God is love. He is love. He can do no other. So now let me take this a step further, if you don't mind. Love implies communion. It implies communion between persons. It presupposes a relationship requiring both a subject and an object. And we also know that God is eternal. He always has and He always will exist. So before he made the world, before he formed the first angels, before he created humankind, 
God already was. He already existed. More accurately, God is. So I want you to think about that. That if God was this solitary figure, if he was an isolated being like this, if he was a solitary one, then we could not say of him that intrinsically he is a God of love. We could not say that about him because God would have no object to love until he finally does his first acts of creating. So the fact that the eternal God is love means that there must be a plurality of persons within his divine nature. It requires that. And this is the very God that the Bible reveals. Um, we find this idea of the, etern- the eternally loving relationship within the Trinity on the lips of Jesus. In John chapter 17, you don't have to turn there. It's his, what's called his upper room discourse, John 14, 15, 16, 17. Some of his most profound teaching. And here's what he says in John chapter 17, verse 24. He said, Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. So do you see how that love within God was existing even before creation? God, because he is a oneness of three, that love can happen inside of him. So here's what we learn from this, that God in his essence exists as a loving community of persons. That's how he exists. That's his essence. And not just any kind of love, but specifically agape love. That word, in fact, love, I didn't count how many times the word love occurs repeatedly in the text that I read. I could have gone up to verse 11 and started multiple times, and it's always the Greek word agape, or the verb agapao, which is sacrificial, self-giving, unconditional, always there kind of love. That's the kind of love that's inside of the, the life of the Trinity. And according to verse 18, if you look at verse 18, it is called perfect love. It's perfect love. So God is a being of perfect agape love. That is who He is. So I declare to you this morning what Scripture says, that the God of the Bible is the unsolitary God. He's the unsolitary God. Some of us here grew up with 7-Up commercials where 7-Up was called the Uncola. How many of you remember the Uncola, right? Well, I want you to know God is the unsolitary God, that the Bible teaches the true and living God. He is Father, Son, and Spirit eternally bound together in love. The triune God exists within loving community. That what the scripture teaches, that God is fundamentally relational and personal. He is a a circle, divine circle of relating. That's who he is. That in a wonderful surprise, when we come to scripture, we find God revealing himself. We find out that with his own being as one God, that he exists as a fellowship. He exists as a fellowship. Does that remind you of anything? If you're here, you know somehow I've got to get something in with Tolkien, right? The fellowship of the rings, of the rings and how, how central that story, that idea of fellowship was to that story. The God in the Bible is a God of perfect love and perfect fellowship, loving and delighting in each other. And I want you to know only the biblical God has this attribute. Only the biblical God has this attribute. We don't follow a God who's a static, solitary, unmovable, non-relational deity. Rather, we worship a God. We worship a God who exists in a tri-personal mystery of love. Praise the Lord for that, right? Isn't that awesome? Now, 
the implications of this idea are really huge, and here's why. Because if God is at the center of the universe as its creator, if God is at the center of the universe, and if God in his essence, in his core, if God is love, then that means that love and relationship are at the center of everything. It's at the center of everything. The love, relationship, and community truly are the most important thing. And this rings so true to me in my own heart, right? And I think it rings true to you. Most people I talk to, this rings true to. And that's why with that beginning question, almost everybody, in, in the years, I had one person who told me they picked something else off the floor, didn't want to be around family or friends their last 24 hours. That's fine. That's who they were. Had somebody first semester, I mean, first service grab me, said, uh, I'd, rather, I'd rather you fly me somewhere. So that's fine. But most people, the thing that they would spend their last 24 hours is being in relationship with the people they love. And that's why this totally rings true to who I am. Here's why this is really important. You can take any other religion, any other worldview, and I'm not going to do all of them, but you can learn about the core, the thing about what that says about who God is or what the universe is like and what's at the core of it. And what you'll frequently find is what's the core of that worldview is not at the core of who I am intimately and deeply. If I just take atheism and materialism, atheism and materialism would say at the core of the universe is material, right? This is the most important thing. This is the thing that exists. But that's not what rings true to me. What rings true to me is that I'm a person who loves and, and is in relationship and longs to be in relationship. So this triune God, that tells me like, this is the thing that I'm created for, right? This is what I long for. And it's because the reason I think we long for that is it is hardwired into the universe and it's hardwired into us to be relational. Viktor Frankl once wrote, he says, a thought transfixed me. For the first time in my life, I saw the truth as it is set into song by so many poets, proclaimed as the final wisdom by so many thinkers. The truth that love is the ultimate and the highest goal to which man can aspire. I think if Jesus could tweak that a little bit, he would say, the ultimate goal you can aspire is to love God with all of your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind, but to love others. But I think we know what his point is, right? I think we get his point. Here's what James Whitmill Early said in his book, The Common Rule, amazing book. We did not come forth from loneliness, from Unitarianism. We came from friendship. Everything in the universe has its roots in friendship. That means the longing to be in relationship with other people is at the heart of every molecule of existence. Amen? But I want you to know, this is not what our culture tells us. It's not what our culture tells us. I think for all of us, but especially for the guys that are here, especially for the guys, um, the cultural narrative that we imbibe, the cultural air that we breathe, tells us that the quintessential person is the solitary, isolated, rugged individual. That's what our cultural narrative is. It's the mountain man, right? These are the people we think so highly of. It's the lone marshal who single-handedly takes down a whole group of outlaws in the town. It's the business mogul, the self-made business mogul. mogul. It's the entertainer who did it my way. So I think at least for guys, speaking for guys in particular, a lot of the people that are the heroes in the movies we love are lone wolves. When I was a kid, it was the lone ranger that I watched. I mean, any character played by Clint Eastwood, right? I don't care who the character is. He's a lone, lone guy, right? People like Mad Max or Rambo or John McClane or, if I were to get a little more modern, John Wick, okay? Okay. 
the Dark Knight, even the Lego Batman. How many of you have seen the Lego Batman? I'm curious. I want to know how many people this will resonate deeply with who says, I don't do ships, right? Meaning by that, I don't do relationships. Great movie, by the way. I had somebody after the service who watched it with me at my house said, that was one of the most 15, that was in the top 15 of the most significant things of my life was watching Lego Batman with your group. Um, it's really great on this topic, I think. I could name others, right, who fit this. Oh, that, by the way, I threw that in for my son-in-law. He's not here this semester. I mean, this service, sorry, I keep seeing. But I could name others um, who fit this, right, ladies? Um, and just so you know, I put, I mean, Bailey knows, I put that in there as a blatant appeal for some approval and applause, but I didn't get anything. Oh, here we go. Okay. That's, that's the whole reason I did that. Um, but the point is, is that the ideal of this solitary, rugged, self-sufficient individual, it is woven into the fabric of our culture. Okay. It's in the air that we breathe. And frankly, it is a lie. It's a lie. When God created humankind, he created them in community, in community. We looked at this text last week. I want to come back to it. It had hints of the plurality and oneness of God, but it also speaks to us in our nature. So in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Even more telling is Genesis 2 that goes into more detail on the creation of mankind. In Genesis 2-7, it tells us that the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Verse 18, but the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. Verses 21 to 22, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, and then he closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And then the man said, wow, would you look at that, uh-huh, right? He said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And then verse 24, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one, echad, from last week, they become one flesh. So I want you to know, when God created humanity, he didn't create a solitary individual, he created two. He created them to live and to be in community, in loving community. And so what Scripture is teaching is that community is the core of who we are as humans because it's the core of who God is. And our need to live in loving relationships with others, it is grounded in and it mirrors the interactions within the Trinity. It mirrors Him. And it is when we live in, it is when we live in community, freely loving, relating to others, that we most perfectly reflect God's own nature. He living in community, that when we live that way, we are reflecting back to Him the reality of who He is and how He designed us. So hear me this morning, we are social creatures, we are made for love, for mutuality, we are made to interact with others, and we are not complete until we are in community, first and foremost with God, our Father in relation to Him, but in community with others. Just a week ago yesterday, we had the Emotionally Healthy Relationship Conference, which was really good, 
And the speaker in that said that over almost 50 years of research, Harvard doing research every year trying to figure out, like, what's the key to happiness, right, recently concluded that in, and when you're taking everything into consideration, that 90%, 96% of happiness is connected to and int- intimately connected with relationships. Relationships. Surprise, surprise. So, it is not good for us to be alone. It's not good for us to be alone. We're made for relationship and for community. And we deny this reality. This is where implications of the Trinity come into reality, right? If we deny this reality, if we deny it, um, we neglect this reality to our own peril, and it's something that our culture is struggling with massively, massively. Just this past May, the U.S. Surgeon General declared what he called an epidemic of loneliness and isolation in the United States. He said it is a public health crisis in our culture right now. And he noted that Americans are more socially socially isolated and lonely than ever before. A 2021 study found that 36%, one-third of all Americans, describe themselves as seriously lonely. One out of three. Can you imagine? Now, in the past, when they've done these studies, the elderly were always the, the, the most lonely group, right? And it kind of makes sense. You've lost a lot of friends and... You, maybe you don't get to interact as much as you want to, but they have found there's been a shift in recent years and found that actually it is the youngest generations now experience the most loneliness with 61% of millennials and Gen Z, say, Gen Z saying they had serious levels of loneliness, 61%, okay? Just this past December, one magazine called 2023, the year of the loneliness epidemic, and loneliness, all the research shows it comes at a steep price physically. I could talk a lot about the, how it affects you physically, length of life, just so many things, but especially emotionally, that when a person's lonely, their levels of anxiety and depression can go through the roof. And the truth is, is everybody's, a lot of literature is talking about this. We as a culture, we are struggling with social isol- isolation and deep, meaningful relationships in a way that no culture in human history ever has before. The social fabric of our culture is starting to fray and to fall apart, and we are living increasingly what's called atomized lives, just like little singular atoms, like bumping around with each other, but without deep connection. And my job this morning isn't to explain the causes, to explore them or to explain them deeply, but a couple things you read consistently that are leading to this or impacting this is one, our social mobility, how much people move around. Um, not only that, the more you use social media, the more lonely you feel. Isn't that kind of crazy? Because social media is supposed to connect. But the problem is you're not connecting with a real life flesh and blood person sitting across a table, like giving a hug when you see each other. And not only that, our attachment to our phones, the more time you spend on your phone, the less present you are with people. I mean, how many times do you see at a restaurant? People are sitting together at Applebee's, even older people, and they're on their phones and you're, you know, right? It's, it's wrecking our ability to relate. So, I'm not here, that's not my focus, but I do have a question this morning um, that I asked myself that I think we all should ask, which is this, are you feeling lonely this morning? Would you say, I'm lonely, and if so, like, to what degree? You know, to be alone and to go it alone is not how God designed us. That's why God is in the business of creating community. 
all through the story of the Bible, God has been working to create a community of people who love and worship and serve Him. And any time God wants to go on mission and do something, He uses a community to do it, a community of His people. It's Israel in the Old Testament. It's the church in the New Testament. And here is the genius of that first Jesus community, that first group of Jesus followers we find in the book of Acts, that they knew and they embodied the value of community. They had a word for it. They called it koinonia. It means deep fellowship. You can read Acts 2 and Acts 4 to see the description of what that looked like. But here's what they did. They met regularly. They met regularly in community, both large and small. They met large in the temple, we're told. They also met small, more intimately in homes with each other. And here's what I love about it. In doing this, they were following the way of Jesus. They were following a pattern that he had actually established himself. Who as he traveled and as he ministered, he had 72 followers, we're told, who were with him throughout most of his ministry. But we're also told of the 72, he had, he had a circle of 12 individuals that he spent the most time with and he poured into, right? But out of that 12, he also had three who were the people he was most intimate and most deeply connected with, Peter, James, and John. And so based on that reality, I want to show you a diagram, and I want to introduce some language to you that you're going to be hearing around here some more in the years to come, and it is this, rows, circles, and tables, rows, circles, and tables. These are three levels of community, and these are three environments, relational environments, going from larger to smaller. I mean, rows is pretty obvious, right? It would represent the Sunday morning gathering. Um, it would represent the if gathering that's going to happen in, I think, eight, in April, is it late March, early April? I'm not sure. If gathering for women, the men's retreat March 23rd, that's rows. But there's going to be some circles in that, but it's a lot of rows stuff. Circles would represent a weekly small group that I belong to. Tables would represent my closest and deepest Christian friendships. And sadly for our culture, most people in our culture, the word church to them, which of those three does the word church mean? Which one? Rose, right? If you ask somebody about church, they say, yeah, I'm going to go to church today. And that means I'm going to get up on Sunday, and I'm going to go to the church building, and I'm going to sit in a row, and I'm going to sing worship songs, and I'm going to, to give worship and giving, and I'm going to worship by listening to the proclamation of the Word, and hang out and fellowship a little bit. That's what we tend to think of. Um, and I want you to know, there's nothing wrong with rows. There's nothing wrong with this environment. It's important, again, the early church met in a large group in the temple courts. But I want you to know in the New Testament, the emphasis isn't on going to church. It is on being the church, okay? I can go to church and sit in a row, but it's hard to be the church, okay? I can do it to a degree, but it's hard. That's why circles and tables are so important because that's where we get to be the church. You know, the primary meeting space of the early church throughout the whole Roman Empire for the first 400 years, and the primary meeting space, if we met believers around the globe, the primary meeting space is in homes where you sit in a circle, right? Where you sit in a circle. The equivalent of our small group gatherings where we share our lives with others as we try to live into our, our commitment to Jesus. But more than that, the early church not just did the circle thing, they also did the table thing. 
They valued the intimate connection with one or two or three, with two or three. So you have like Paul Barnabas or the classic example, Paul Timothy in the early church. So you see, the early church was modeling practice what they had seen in Jesus' own ministry, what they'd seen in his own ministry. And here's the truth. All three environments are important. I don't want to downplay any of them, okay? But they serve, they serve different functions. But the truth be told, as I move from rows to circles to tables, right, you find greater levels of community, greater levels, deeper levels of sharing, deeper levels of intimacy, greater levels of vulnerability, greater levels of accountability. And the reality is you find the greatest level of life change around a table, becoming more and more like Jesus. I am convinced, I think it's biblical, we all need a table in our lives. All of us need a table. We need to have a few deep soul friends. What Five years ago when I talked about this idea, what's called a covenant friend, somebody who knows my soul deeply, who is trying, we're trying to prod each other on to love and good deeds and to love and follow Jesus more intimately. People with whom I sit and meet around a table to have that kind of conversation, that kind of sharing. Tables are essential in my growing walk with Jesus. I have found that to be so true. And I said this five years ago when I talked about covenant friendship, David and Jonathan being the example of that, how their souls were knit together. That's what a covenant friendship is. That for my generation, I said this back then, but the the statistics showed that for my generation, by the time we hit 50, most men in America no longer had a deep soul friend. They had friends but not somebody they could deeply connect with around a table, okay? But here's what's really crazy is the research is showing for the younger generations, they're losing that in their 30s, in their 30s. I think the ladies probably know this more than guys, but we all need intimate friends who know us, who love us deeply, that we can share everything about our lives with and who can help us to walk more closely with Jesus. And we need that because we were created in the image of a triune God who was three and one and had this amazing level of intimacy in that community. So do you see why I said last week, I find the Trinity so beautiful. It's not just this this weird doctrine you just set up on the shelf, you know, and kind of hold at arm's length. I find this beautiful. I find the God of the Bible amazingly beautiful that he exists. He is a God of love who exists in community. Are you not like, do you not find that compelling? And you're like, I want to know this God more. I want to worship this God. I want to fall on my knees before him. And don't you see the practical implication, the truth of this to our lives? It's not just, again, something that's airy-fairy out there in the sky. This has real things to say about how I live my life. Taking this idea of God existing in community affects my real life. It speaks into how I live. Last week, I shared this quote from Leonard J. Vander Zee, probably Dutch fellow, I assume. Is that probably a good guess? Um, that the Holy Trinity is the bedrock reality upon which the whole structure of the universe is built. But I intentionally left the last part of that off last week. He went on to say, at the heart of reality, at the heart of reality is this community of divine love. And Dallas Willard wrote this, the advantage of believing in the Trinity is not that we get an A from God for giving the right answer. Remember, to believe something is to act as if it is so. To believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4 is to behave accordingly when trying to find out how many apples or dollars in the house. 
The advantage of believing is not that we can pass tests in arithmetic, it is that we can deal much more successfully with reality. And how much true is that here with this? So 12th, here's the reality. For you to thrive as a person, for you to thrive as a human, for you to thrive as a follower of Jesus, we all need community and we need all three of those environments. I'm convinced of that. I need larger environments. I need rows. I need to have at least one circle in my life, but I've got to have a table with some people who know me deeply. And that's so because we are created in the image of God who exists in loving community who is inherently relational and personal and who lives in an eternal fellowship of joy and delight. That's why I need those things. And 12, when we embody this, we are reflecting and embodying the Trinity to other people to see. That's why community is so important. So here's my big question for us as we wrap up. Here's what I want to know. How are you really doing with this thing called community? Really? In all honesty, how are you doing in all three environments as you think about those? How are you doing in those? First, talk about rows for a minute. You're here, so I assume you value rows to a degree, right, since you're here. Um, it is an important environment, but my question would be, is, is this a regular environment for you? The latest research after COVID is that the average evangelical Christian comes to the rows, comes to Sunday morning church 1.5 times a month, and I just want you to know, that is not enough to even try to be the church, it's not enough to try to grow in any meaningful way. So, and not only that, it violates the command of God who says in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, let us consider, let us think about how we can spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some people are in the habit of doing, not doing that, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day of Jesus' return approaching. So, step one for some of us, I think, is to follow the example of some of our older believers in this body who kind of grew up with the mindset of if the church doors are open, I'm going to be there, okay? There's always reasons. You know, we get sick, we have to go out of town. I'm not trying to do that in a legalistic way, but this mindset of like, I need to be there, right? My next question is, is do you have a circle? Do you have a group of eight to 12 that you meet with regularly? You study the word together. You pray together. You share your life together. You are known and you, you are known. You know and you are known. You minister with them. Do you have that kind of community? If not, that's very important here. The circles are important. That's a lot of what Lisa does. We tend to form those around the semesters. We just got some launched. Um, if you're interested in a circle, one, you can form one. You don't need us to help you do it. But if you're like, I don't know enough people, um, talk to Lisa when we get to this summer. We'll probably do some studies in the summer or next fall. We would love to get you in a circle. And then finally, I want to ask, do you have a table? Do you have two or three covenant friends in your life, soul friends, people that you can honestly, no holds barred, warts and all, you can share everything. You can really open up your soul, okay? They know your hopes and your dreams. They know your fears and your deep discouragements. They know your victories, they know your struggles, they know your failures, they know your doubts and your questions, and they hold you accountable as we all stumble towards Jesus trying to follow him, right? People who know my life and my soul hold me accountable. Um, if you don't have a table, I think it's time you start praying and asking God to help you find one. And that might take some effort on you. Sometimes it's like, I'm not sure who to do. 
but I encourage you to start praying and seeking that in your life. Okay, would you stand with me? I want to close with the Lord's, not the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed. So if you would read this with me. Let's confess this, okay? Not just read it. I believe in God the Father, Almighty Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven, and He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And if that's your confession, say amen. Amen. We worship a Trinitarian God who exists in a community of love. Father, I want to just pray for this body, Lord. Community is not easy for us. We are sinful. We're broken. We're like a bunch of porcupines who are drawn together for warmth, and then we poke each other and pull away. And so it's just not easy, but it's also our heart's deepest longing. And Lord, you've created us for that, and I pray that everybody that's here this morning, that we would really think, take this, and it just wouldn't be a sermon we've heard and we leave, but we would really think about community in our lives, that we would think about those three environments. And Lord, if any of those are missing in our lives, Lord, that we would begin moving with intentionality, prayerfully seeking for a way to have that environment in my life. Lord, I I just pray that over the next few years, this would become a place where everybody's got a table. We pray this in the name of Jesus and of the Father and of the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We pray in the name of Yahweh, the Trinity. Amen. God's people said amen. All right. Twelfth, you are sent into community.